2: Camp Hell, Anawaiki, is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised.
3: Staff at Camp Anawaiki would not talk about the GBI investigation into possible financial irregularities and alleged sexual misconduct between youngsters and camp counselors. The more than 1,200-acre camp is home to around 100 children. Neighbors living near Camp Anawake say they are concerned about a lack of supervision at the camp. Two years ago, a 13-year-old boy left the facility, allegedly stole a gun, and while attempting to steal a car, shot and killed a homeowner.
4: By 1986, word had started to get around that some inappropriate actions were being taken by the staff at Anawake. Following Sarah Tillis' realization that there may have been sexual abuse taking place on the annual Mexico trips, a report was made to social services in June. Social worker Pat Griffin laid out her concerns in a correspondence to Brett Baxley and Jim Womack, two heads of management at Anawaiki. The concerns include secret pacts that nothing would be repeated which happened on the Mexico trip, that adolescents were encouraged to go into, quote, whorehouses, and that homosexual acts had occurred between a staff member and an adolescent, an internal investigation of Anna Wakey would follow, conducted by Director of Therapeutic Services Jim Womack, himself a known abuser in the organization. In a letter to the then head administrator James Henry Evans, Womack reports, quote, The supervisors denied any knowledge of staff encouraging the students to engage in any of the activities mentioned. There is no corroborating evidence from any of the interviews of the people who were directly involved with the Mexico trip. Continued discussion of the memo appears without credible value and constructive purpose. Not only was the board of directors becoming suspicious of Petter and other counselors' actions with the patients its financial records were now under scrutiny as well. Here's journalist Albert Edgen.
5: There are these money issues that they're concerned about, and they've been rubber stamping pretty much. The board's been rubber stamping everything he suggested. Now they've lost trust. So how do you deal with that? And we're beginning to, to think, well, with Pedago dead, Pedigo was a guy that Petter was able to control. Let's just stop and see how much he was controlled. That was the important thing in their minds that they were at a, juncture in in administrative time for Anna Wakey, where they could get control of things that they were frustrated that they didn't have control of before. So they began to look at things, or they wanted to look at things. At the same time, there was talk of sale of Anna Wakey. There was some rumors about sale and conversation about sale, and conversation had begun about maybe
4: Petterin and, and his wife should retire or resign. Further infighting between the upper management of Aniwake was also going on at this time. This came to a head following the funeral of Chief Financial Officer Bud Pedigo. A meeting between Sarah Tillis and two other heads of Aniwake, James Henry Evans and Bud's wife and Petter's daughter, Marcia Pedigo, showed some very troubling information regarding Bud's death and what occurred shortly before it. Just before his fatal car accident, Petter had directed Bud Pedigo to take out a key man insurance policy. This is like a life insurance policy, except that it pays out the company the person worked for before their death. This policy had earned Anawaiki Incorporated a sum of over $300,000 after Bud's death, leaving his wife, Marcia only $70,000. This was not the only issue upper management at Anawaiki was concerned about. During this meeting, it was also discussed that Petter was still planning to sell Anna Wakey. Petter's son-in-law, James Henry Evans, and Jim Womack had put in a bid to buy the organization and were in the process of getting their finances together. Louis Petter decided against the sale, further aggravating the family involved in upper management. At an annual fellowship meeting in 1986, Petter surprised the staff and board of directors by announcing a new head of management just under Petter, one Fred Fulmer. Evans was outraged after realizing he would not be able to buy a Wakey and left the gathering early. The board and upper management were now beginning to become weary of Petter themselves. In short, they wanted Petter out.
5: Their trust in him began to erode seriously with that incident in the van in Mexico and they began rethinking some other things that they had ignored in the past. If you look at Sarah's testimony, she says several times she regrets having been controlled. And it's not just by Petter. I mean, Petter, it's Sarah Tillis is sort of examining her whole life. At one point she says, I've been controlled by white men for too long. Sarah Tillis is having an epiphany that starts in 84, and by the time Pedigo dies, Sarah Tillis' epiphany is the death knell for Louis Petter's abuse.
4: Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a number of individuals involved with it.
3: It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any
6: better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis better? He had no answer to that question.
3: The of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary, Of what they should
4: have done. I'm disturbed
3: over the fact that something is still going on at Aniwake.
4: I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Aniwake. Key members of Aniwake's upper management were beginning to see Louis Petter in a new light, and starting to connect the dots of the suspicious activity they had seen before. Sarah Tillis would attempt to have Petter removed at a board of directors meeting, but Petter had another trick up his sleeve yet again. Through a technicality of the board of directors' bylaws, Petter made it known that Sarah Tillis was in fact not even a part of the board anymore. Tillis would be unable to voice her concern at the board meeting, and it infuriated her. Sarah Tillis wanted to remove Petter, believing that there was still potential for Anna Wakey. She would soon learn something that would change that.
5: Sarah's purpose all along was to get it back into shape. She believed in the mission, the fundamental mission of the place, because her sons had been treated there. Then one of her sons told him that he, too, had been abused sexually by Louis Petter. And that changed her life. That changed her uh, goals. At that point, her goal was to get rid of Petter and to get him in jail.
4: By June of 1986, Tillis was keeping daily notes of her actions regarding Anna Wakey. She had attempted to have Petter removed from the board, only to find that he had in fact had her and another colleague removed first. She then decided to take matters even further into her own hands, meeting with a law firm to discuss trying to conduct her own investigation into Anawaiki concerning misuse of corporate funds, abuse, and sexual abuse happening. Tillis writes that she was recommended to hire a former FBI agent to conduct a private investigation for the cost of up to $100,000. Jim Parham was included in this meeting as well, back at the helm of Aniwaki's board of directors after his stint serving in Jimmy Carter's presidential cabinet. Parham stated that an in-house committee would clean up all of the problems at Aniwaki. Sarah wrote that as she and her husband left the office, Parham's last words to her were this, quote, Sarah, it will never be cleaned up. It will be a whitewash. You watch and see. In July of 1986, Sarah Tillis went to Jim Parham again to show him some irregularities she had found in the company's finances. A memo from Parham covering the concerns mentions a laundry list of illegal actions, including embezzlement of funds from Petter regarding his pension, a new accountant keeping financial records outside of the state for, quote, safekeeping, shady real estate deals with questionable leasing for Anawakee's properties, a salary in the form of a scholarship from Anawakee given to Petter's daughter Dana while she attended the University of Georgia and a large amount of lost or stolen money from last year's Mexico trip, totaling $20,000 in cash, as well as over $12,000 of expended jewelry. Parm was informed, or at least aware of the concern of sexual abuse taking place at Anawaiki as well. In a letter from Parham to one of Anawaiki's lawyers from July of 1986, he asks about Anawaiki's liability in the case of any child abuse or molestation taking place. There is no mention of concern for the victims, only making sure to keep the board safe from any further litigation. In a board meeting that same month, it was decided that Louis Petter and his wife Mabel would leave Anna Wakey on a sabbatical, still receiving their monthly salaries until the end of the year. After that, Petter would officially retire from his role The writing was on the wall, and it was time for Petter to distance himself from the organization. The board of Anawaiki was attempting to address these issues in-house as best they could, but it was too late. Local law enforcement had already begun their own investigation.
7: perfect home sweet home
4: While Jim Parm is documented as having known of the allegations of child abuse as early as July of 1986 nothing was reported to local police by the Anawaiki organization Parm had however relayed this information to a number of attorneys under its employment The district attorney for Douglasville at the time, Frank Wynn, says he had his suspicions about Anoike for some time. Once Sarah Tillis decided to bring her story to him, he says Sheriff Earl Lee began an investigation whose scope would be far greater than they originally realized.
8: After Earl started talking to whoever the ones were that he interviewed to start with, it was like a snowball going downhill each one of them it seemed would have other people's names that they would suggest or tell Earl he needed to talk to and it became overwhelming a lot quicker than either one of us thought as far as people to talk to now he would try to talk to some of them who would not talk to him and this is purely an example without, no, without remembering anything specific. He would talk to uh, one of the kids. They would give him a list of anywhere from two to six or seven other people to talk to. Maybe only two of those would talk to Earl, and the others wouldn't. But the two that would talk would say yes, and it was like they were finally getting something off their chest. And one of them would give Earl a list of another five names. And again, he would have five more that there would be hit or miss with which ones would talk to him. But as that list exponentially would grow, some of the same names would come up more than once. So somebody that might not have talked to Earl to begin with, Earl would go back to him and let them know look you're not alone and we know from three other people that you were somebody who was in the the right situation it looked like and and eventually there were several people that wouldn't talk to Earl that later did.
4: Frank says that for Earl Lee it didn't matter what time of day or night if someone wanted to come forward and speak he would be there to listen.
8: I won't ever forget Earl getting a phone call from somebody out of state and said they wanted to talk to him. And Earl basically said, you know, I'll talk to you whenever you can get here. And he said, well, I can come now. And somewhere around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, Earl had one of his deputies, Ronnie Shaddix was the one that usually got to do it. Earl started with the old VHS type of camera video in the interviews. And so, 3 o'clock in the morning, he's got Ronnie Shaddocks out of bed at at the office, you know, making him video, his interview of this kid that just had gotten in touch with him and said he wanted to talk. Didn't bother Earl to get up at 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning and go meet a kid. This was important to talk to this kid. He needed to talk, and Earl was
4: ready to listen to him. It was not long after local law enforcement had begun their initial investigation until the Georgia Bureau of Investigations began getting involved with the case against Anawaiki.
8: I can tell you it snowballed fairly quickly, and it would have been within, when I say a short period of time, I'm talking about, you know, just a few months. And it was more a matter of manpower issues than anything.
4: Anawaiki was now in damage control mode. A letter from Anawaiki's attorney, Baxter Davis, was sent to all employees of the organization, reminding them of the confidentiality of Anawake business. Jim Parham, now heading the board of directors after Petter had stepped down, fired three staff members, one including a nurse who had sexual relations with a patient on the Mexico trip, and another who, quote, lost control while trying to restrain a child. Frank Wynne says that Anawaiki was anything but cooperative with law enforcement during their investigation.
8: Well, we had to get some search warrants, so they weren't. But of course, his whole family was involved in Anawaki so some of the stuff that was going on involved getting search warrants to go out there. But I would say a lot of the people that Earl interviewed that were not family members, I think a majority of them were, were cooperative. If it was something to do with the Petter family, the cooperation was minimal. And sometimes maybe superficial would be a better description of the cooperation.
4: Frank says that Earl Lee was now going back through any files which they had on Inoike, one of which being the suicide that had taken place a few years back. This incident, too, seemed to fit the same pattern of abuse which they had seen.
8: I won't say enough about Earl and how much he worked, but one of the things he would also remember stuff about old cases, and he he never forgot that. And so one of the things he knew when we were looking at, at other documents was he was always wondering if there was anything related to the kid that had dove off the chimney onto the concrete slab, and he found in during a search we had taken some documents and he found a document related to that kid and of course earl would have been looking for that while while we're going through everything earl would have remembered that kid's name and looked for it and i remember him telling me he found the file on the kid and and the kid had been my memory without knowing all of the details of what the kid's issues were but the kid had progressed and it appeared that Louis Petter had had some uh, time with the kid, so to Earl and to us, it looked like this kid uh, had progressed through the hospital in a way that he should have graduated, and he was ready to graduate, and he was told that you're not graduating from the program. And in that file, it also reflected that there appeared to have been some time where Lewis Petter had wanted the kid to go with him some places and he may have actually gone with him. So without knowing what happened, we felt like there had been possibly some rejection, but definitely the kid was ready to leave and was prevented from leaving. And so it opened up a whole nother idea or, Questions about why the kid committed suicide because he had had some time with Lewis Petter and he had been prevented from leaving when it appeared that his records
4: showed he was ready to leave. By September, news had been informed that an official investigation into Anawaiki was being conducted. Parents of patients were sent letters from the new head of the administration, Jim Parham. Scott Hull was a patient during this time. He was supposed to go on the annual Mexico trip that year. These plans changed, however, once the criminal investigation began. So I probably remember the investigation starting just before we were supposed to take the trip to Mexico. You know, we didn't have access to media or anything like that, so we had no way of knowing anything that was going on. We couldn't talk to our parents for the most part, unless we were Crest members. So, you know, we'd, we were in this bubble, but then when we were not allowed
1: to go to Mexico and had to go out west, that's, I guess, when it really dawned on me that this is a serious investigation and, you know, something's going to happen. <laughs> I don't really remember an announcement about the investigation. I remember there was a lot of scuttlebutt and, you know, the, the kids talking amongst
4: themselves of rumors that they'd heard about this or about that. Carl Moore was also supposed to go on that year's Mexico trip.
6: That summer's trip, we didn't go to Mexico. We just went around the United States. But before we left, I knew that something was going on. I didn't think too much of it. I just knew something was going on. There weren't any details that I recall at the time. That was at the beginning of the summer of 86, I want to say. I think when we got back from that trip, it sounded like something serious was going on, you know, but it was all posed as like, yeah, we got a political problem. There's a problem with the board or something like that. Is I think the way it was kind of played out in front of me initially.
4: Carl remembers a conversation with Louis Petter's adopted son, Gus, a quadriplegic who Carl believes went through the same abuse that he endured for years.
6: At some point about that time, I went to visit Gus, Gus Petter, who was, I don't know if he was ever legally adopted or not, but probably went through the same things I did. I was friends with him, but he was a quadriplegic and, and he and I never talked about it. But when I mentioned to him that something was going on and Gus said, well, it's, it's not about sex, is it? And I said, I don't know. He says, well, if it's about sex, they'll, they'll eat him alive or something like that. That was kind of like a, a moment in time where I kind of felt like there was a history there that I didn't know about. That was my first inkling of that. And it wasn't long after that that I went down to meet uh, Petter's attorneys. They essentially wanted to videotape me, you know, denying everything, anything sexual or inappropriate or financial or anything. I was definitely on the party line at that point. At some point, I had an encounter with Early. I think they came over, actually, to search the house or something. I had I noticed somebody was watching the house. <laughs> at any rate, when they came to search the house, I called the attorney, and I think I left there, and they gave me an attorney. I didn't know Early. I, I met him there at Petter's house the first time, but I knew who he was. Anyway, it, was, it wasn't it was too long after that that uh, Douglas County, uh, they had asked me to come down there for questioning, and I did. But I called the attorney. They said, if anything happens, you call us. So I called them.
4: Carl had asked his appointed attorney if he could go pick up some of his belongings as he was going to be in custody for some time.
6: I... Uh, asked if I could go back and get some stuff, and he said, well, I'm going to check with Earl Lee and see if it's okay for you to get some of your stuff out of the house. So I did. I went back there, and that's when they arrested me.
4: (laughs) Carl had been arrested with the charge of sodomy with none other than his own abuser, Louis Petter. Because in the state of Georgia, the act of sodomy itself was a crime, both Petter and Carl could be charged with the same act.
6: I didn't know this at the time, but the way they wrote it, the statute of limitations had actually expired on it. It really wasn't even a valid warrant, but of course they, they brought me in and I just denied it because that's what I was told to expect and, what, and told what to do. But they brought me in and put me in a, in a room, so I just spent the night in that room. It's the same thing that technically they could have charged everybody who was in the counts against Petter with the same thing. That was a hard thing to get over. That was the last time I saw any of them was the day I was arrested. I never went back and saw anybody.
4: Did you ever speak with Petter again? No. Carl says it was with the help of his attorney, David Botts, that he decided what he ultimately had to do.
6: The next morning, I happened to be looking out the window and I saw my dad walking across the parking lot. I hadn't seen him in probably five years or six years. David Botts ended up coming down and uh, he said the perfect thing to me. He said, you can tell the truth about this stuff. It's going to be okay. He says, you can lie about it. It's going to be okay, but it's going to cost you a lot more money. <laughs> it was something like that and uh what he was doing was, uh, was helping me to do the right thing. And uh, I'll always be grateful to him for that. I can tell you that, well, the re- redeeming thing about the whole thing was that they could have treated me a lot different than they did. It wasn't easy, and I was uh, in a really, really precarious state. And I hadn't given them the impression I was going to cooperate. And the experience of, you know, I, going through that, it was like uh, it's so hard to describe this time when it was almost like I had been blind and all of a sudden I could see. It was almost just that dramatic, the stripping off of the denial and it was just a brutal way to do it. can't go back and change anything about it and I don't know if it would have worked any different in any other way. It's just the way it was. Carl Moore would have been initially charged
8: because of what we believed he had done, and all we may have known to start with would have been the sodomy with Lewis Petter. That may have been all we knew, but we believed there was more to it as far as Carl Moore helping Lewis Petter or being involved with Lewis Petter in some ways. So the charge was brought to get him to to talk. In a shortcut way, that is what happened, but it's not actually what we were thinking because we didn't know that he would ever talk. And we believed he was involved. And if he wanted to protect Lewis better, then he was just going to have to deal with the consequences of what he had done. If he was a party to the crime, then he was going to have to deal with the consequences. If If he had been trained and groomed, then we were ready to do what we could to help him. Carl Moore at the time, I believe, was living with Lewis Petter. He was either still there or had just moved out. So we believed he was involved, but Carl cooperated later. He was one of the ones that gave us a lot of good information.
6: We spent about, I think I went in there every day for a week and he and a couple other guys interviewed me all day long, (laughs) for like seven or eight days. You know, just covered everything. As you can imagine, it was not an easy thing. At some point along the way, I met a couple of guys, and I don't remember who they were, who uh, had been through the same thing I had been through. They were from an earlier time, maybe from the 70s. We ended up in a room together, and I don't even remember how it happened, but we all knew and we all had the same story.
4: Frank says that ultimately, they did not pursue charges against Carl Moore. He says in an investigation like this, the line between victim and abuser can sometimes be blurred. Such was also the case with Sarah Tillis' son, David, who had also been a victim of Petter's abuse, but may have also had some accusations against him. However, No criminal charges or cases were filed against David Tillis surrounding these events. I remember vaguely that there had been some accusations
8: about Tillis. I can't tell you why he wasn't charged, because I don't remember the details of any involvement that David Tillis had. But I do know that he was someone that had been Uh, In my mind, I believe he was someone that had been abused and groomed by Petter. That would have been the number one thought going through my mind.
6: David was, from my perspective, just like everyone else who had gone through what I'd gone through. No question about it. I mean, he definitely went through at least most of the things I did.
8: It's like Carl Moore. No matter what we believed at the beginning, we didn't pursue the charges because we knew he was... He was truly a victim. It makes it hard for me to tell you why we did or didn't do something on David Tillis or any of them, other than I know that Petter had taught them what he tried to teach
4: several of them. After months of gathering testimony, the authorities now had enough evidence to obtain an arrest warrant for Louis Petter. The only problem was Petter had fled the country. At the advice of Jim Parham, Louis Petter and his wife Mabel left the country to stay at their residence in Pachuco, Mexico. In a statement from Parham, he said, quote, Mr. Petter went on vacation last week to Mexico. I'm sure they will return once their attorney informs them of the charges. We want everyone to know that at the beginning of the investigation, we offered our cooperation to the GBI and the sheriff's officers. Psychologist Roger Wren, one of the original whistleblowers who attempted to report the abuse back in 1970, received a call one day from out of the blue. I was in my
3: practice uh, seeing patients, and my secretary interrupted. She said, Dr. Wren, I've got somebody on the phone that needs to talk to you. And I said, well, who's that? And she said, a sheriff. I said, oh, which sheriff? And she said, Sheriff Lee. I don't know a Sheriff Lee, but I'll talk to him. And he had a very distinct Southern accent. I had met him, I found out later, years before when he was a deputy with Abercrombie. But, you know, he and I didn't get together at all at that point. But he calls me up and he said, Dr. Rand. And I'm a s sh- i am hate to uh, mimic his voice, but he was such a cool character. I said, Yes, sir. And he said, This is sheriff Earl Lee. I said, Yes, sir. He said, We got the SOB. And I said, What? And I had no idea who he was talking about. He said, yeah, if it looks like a duck.
8: Flies like a duck,
5: swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, in all probability it's a duck.
3: And I said, who are you talking about? And he said, Lewis Jerome Petter. And I almost cried. I mean, I got emotional. My patient was sitting there wondering, what's wrong with that guy? And I said, hallelujah. And then he told me there were something like 270 instances of sexual assault and that they had no question. And he was really wanting the transcript of the hearing. And I, I told him that Bob D'Agostino had it and had purchased it with his own money for this day. And it, the man, you, you, could, you could hear him laughing on the other side. He said, I'm so happy. No matter whatever happened, to uh Sheriff Lee, I, that is his proudest moment. I was very happy for him, but I was happier for the for the kids. The one reason we did this because it was not a picnic is to protect these kids and I don't think the kids knew what was going on and, and how much pain we had because we didn't share it with them. Uh, but it was a tough road to hoe but at that moment, I I completely relaxed. I realized I had been carrying that load for 15 to 20 years. It was just a a relief off my back. And then Bob and I talked, and uh, the rest, of course, is history.
7: your perfect home, sweet home.
4: On October 5th, 1986, Lewis Petter had finally surrendered to the authorities. Sheriff Earl Lee, along with help from the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, were now entrenched in a full-blown investigation of the operation. Jim Parham, Now taking over Petter's role as head of the board of directors, issued a statement to the press.
7: If anybody's committed acts of wrongdoing, I have no desire to uh, in any way protect them from whatever the law provides.
4: Petter was charged with three counts of sodomy, one count of cruelty to children, and one count of simple battery. These charges would grow as the investigation would broaden. With Petter now in police custody, they had to make sure he would stay in Douglas County before his trial. Frank Wynn says that in order to do this, they used the only tool they had, his bond. Petter's bond was set to an unheard-of amount at the time of $1 million. By many sources, this was considered to be an impossible bond and one that was not meant to be paid.
8: When we arrested Lewis Petter, him being in charge of uh, the biggest emotional care hospital in the state of Georgia, if not the Southeast, it was certainly a major deal. And so he's also had enough prestige, and I say that tongue in cheek, but certainly enough influence and enough presence in the community and in the state that that's a big deal to arrest somebody like that, especially for the type of charges that we were arresting him for. And I don't recall what all Judge James may have said at any bond hearing we had. And I don't recall exactly how the million dollar amount came about, but it, it sort of was a, a compromise between the idea that we've Uh, that somebody's been arrested that is well-known and possibly well-respected. And at the same time, we thought he was a horrible person and horrible charges. And so the bond at that time would have been 10 times larger than probably any bond I'd ever dealt with. Uh, I think the largest bond I had dealt with before that was a $100,000 bond that had been granted in a case. So the million-dollar bond was, was way out of the ordinary, but we felt like, at the time, it gave us some assurance that he wasn't going anywhere.
4: Nearly five weeks after Petter had been taken into custody, a group of friends and supporters had managed to pull together the $1 million to have him released. of this money was taken from Anoike Estates, many of the other payments from members of Anoike's board. What had been thought to be an impossible bond had been reached. Petter was released from the Douglas County Jail on November 7, 1986. Petter expressed his thanks to the friends and family responsible for his release. I just
1: want to express my appreciation to the many families and friends that have united together to make an impossible bond possible. And I appreciate their love and concern, and may God bless each one of
6: them. Any comment on the charges, sir? He's uh,
7: not, guilty, not guilty, guilty of the charges. and He's going to prove it.
4: Petter was free from jail while the investigation into Anoike grew. More faculty members were being charged daily. At this time multiple civil suits against Anawaiki and Louis Petter were also being filed. Petter's world was literally falling down around him. Yet the community was still in his corner. Would the authorities finally have enough evidence to put Petter away for good and put an end to the decades-long history of abuse Wakey had perpetuated? Next time on Camp Hell, Wakey
8: I believe what we did was to take what we could from the Petter family and place it where it needed to be.
6: Don't you think he knew there were people he could go to and say, we better check into this thing about Louis Petter, sodomizing
7: patients at Anna Wake? It was unreasonable to expect that the head of a huge department would perform that kind of direct service.
3: This was the most important case that i have been involved in. We had so many people working for us at one, one time that it was just impossible to keep up with it. But we did it. It was really scary testifying in court, but at the same time, it was a good feeling because I had a lot of anger because I felt like I had been stripped four years of my life
2: Camp Hell and Awake was created and hosted by Josh Thane, with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, l.org. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
2: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.